If you have your Bibles, perhaps you can turn to Genesis, and we're in chapter 10. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. And a Christmas song was on my heart as I was preparing for this. So I'll say some of those words as we start. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. May it be so, O Lord, that our hearts are longing for you, for we know that if we hunger and we thirst after righteousness, we will be blessed and we will be filled. I pray that it be true across this earth that people look to you for their hope. May it be true in this land that the only truest desire that we have as a people on this land wouldn't centre on politicians or even on vaccine, but on you and that you would be our dearest desire. Speak to us this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We come this morning in our study of Genesis to chapter 10. Please follow along in your Bibles. As I read from Genesis 10, you can pray for me as well, for some of these names are a bit tricky. And we start a new told-off section, a new one of these ten generational markers in the book, and as you will see in verse 1. So Genesis 10... These are the generations, this is another, this is another generation, of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Mesesh and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripphath and Togomar. The sons of Javan. Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Saptar, Ramah, and Saptika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalnar in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, yeah, Kalar and Rezan between Nineveh and Kalar, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lehabin, Naphahim, Patruzim, Kazlahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Caphorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites 
the Archites, the Sinites, the Harvardites, the Zemarites, and the Hammerathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gihar, as far as Gaza, Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zephahim, as far as Larsha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elab, Ashur, Apakshad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hal, Getha, and Mash. Apakshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of the one was Pelag, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Jokan. Jokan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hasmarath, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophar, Havilah, and Jobab, all these were the sons of Jokan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Seba to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and errant word. I often wonder when I read passages like this why the Lord called me to be a preacher when I can't even read English, let alone some of these names. But this genealogy, if you call it that, is unique, not only to the Old Testament, but is unique in the ancient world. Other ancient Near Eastern literature had genealogies for kings and for famous rulers and leaders. But they had nothing like an account of all the peoples on the earth, like we find here in Genesis 10. And that is more, all the more striking because there are other parallels with ancient Near Eastern sources. There are flood stories. There are creation stories. There are tower stories. And not because the Bible was drawing from these, but because these things actually happened. And so the peoples had stories about them. But none of them had anything like this, which is an accounting of the people spread across the earth. And if you think about it, it may seem a little strange, as if you were telling the history of, I don't know, Kent, and you began in the very first paragraph to talk about the great dynasties of China. People might ask, well, what's that got to do with Kent? What is the connection here? So most people would understand what we need to tell is the story about us and our people and about our gods and how everything relates to us. So why give an accounting of all the nations scattered around the world? So it's, this is unique among sources in the ancient world. So what we have here is a list of the descendants from Noah through his three sons that covers the globe. And why we have this here, we'll come back to at the end. This morning I just want to make four observations about the text to help us understand it. 
based on, on my study, to see the structure a little bit. Four observations, and then conclude with three themes, or three lessons, three applications from the chapter. Four plus three equals seven. Seven is very biblical. Glad to hear, Murray, just to let you know that I'm keen on numbers. So four observations about the text to help us understand what is going on. The first observation. This list is different from the genealogies that we've seen so far in Genesis. This isn't a strict recounting of individuals, whether it was from the cursed line of Cain, we saw in Genesis 4, or from the chosen line from Seth in Genesis 5. Genesis 5 in particular was a genealogy so detailed it said how many years a man lived. And then he had this son, and he lived this many years, and then he died, and then he had sons and daughters. It gives us information about individuals. That's not what we have here. We have persons, we have peoples and places in this list. A table of nations. We have persons, some of them are named descendants. We start with three individuals, Japheth, Ham and Shem. And there are different individuals pointed to along the way. So we have persons, we have peoples. Many of these names here are not so much individual but nations or tribes that come from individuals. And you see this in Hebrew, by the way, with the ending im. You know, kitim, or dodanim. Because the suffix im in Hebrew is something plural. It's how you make something plural. You also see it in the ending the ites. You know, that designates people. The Hivites, the archites. The Sinites, it designates people. So we have persons, but we have a list more than that of peoples. And then we have places. So don't get confused that some of these names here are places. Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kate, Kalma, in the land of Shinar, Nineveh, Kela, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebahim. The point in chapter 10 is not so much to trace out the line of the woman, which we have been, or the line of the serpent, but to account for the nations spread abroad after the flood. And you see this in verse 32 in the summation. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations, from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So that's the first observation. It's the first observation about some of the names. The second observation. This, this list is sequentially before, chronologically after, the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. Chapter 11, 10 gives us the dispersal of the nations in one sense, chapter 11 in another. And chapter 11, you know, we'll be coming to that the Tower of Babel. So do not be confused when we come to that, to the Tower of Babel. And as a punishment, people have many languages and are dispersed across the globe. And you say, we, all, we, just, we just saw that in chapter 10. Now chapter 10 is the global macro look at the planet. You can see it as the ethno-geographical explanation for the peoples of the earth. Chapter 11 is the theological rationale. Why we get to the way we are 
the Tower of Babel tells us why. It's the second observation, maybe, of interest. The third observation, we shouldn't read our modern categories back into this list. At the end of each of these three sons, they conclude with the same language, sometimes in a different order. Verse 5, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Peoples, lands... Language, clans, nations. We find the same thing in a different order. Verse 20. The sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands and their nations. 31. The sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, their nations. Shem and Ham have the same order, but the same four words are found in Japheth. And four represents the totality of the globe, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of heaven. It's no surprise that these people scattered across the globe are described as lands, languages, clans and nations. Four different terms. And in the book of Revelation, what is gathered around the throne, people from every tribe, language, people, nation. A fourfold designation representing the people from all over the globe. The best way to think about these peoples is probably the word tribes. Some of them grew to be small local tribes, some grew to be powerful, almost empires in their own right. But they had their own cultural, geographical, tribal identity. But we shouldn't be we shouldn't assume anything like our modern understanding of a nation state. The idea that we have of a nation state where people are held together by a broader ideal other than their religious affiliation or their cultural, ethnic background. That's recent in history. That's recent in history. So we don't want to hear this word nations and think government, think Scotland, England, United Kingdom, and things, things like that. But clear boundaries. This is an allegiance or an allegiance to a national identity. That's not what we, th- you know, we, th- we see when we think nations. And it's important when we come to the New Testament to make disciples of all nations. It it could be translated ethnicities, but it's a better idea than we understand nation-states. Because if you took the Great Commission to mean go make disciples of every nation-state, then the Great Commission is completed. Because there is a Christian in every nation-state. Every nation-state. But is there a functioning, fledgling church among the nations? And I mean about the unique ethno-linguistic cultural tribes of the earth. And we also shouldn't confuse chapter 10 to be a list of races. Most of these people, immediately after the flood, would have looked similar. They came from the same three brothers. So it's wrong to think that they represent races as we understand races. So chapter 10 becomes formative and instructive for later biblical history and geography. These names, these peoples will show up again, often in these groupings or in certain pairs. That this is an authoritative accounting of how we mark out the peoples of the earth. That's the third observation. Do not read our current understanding back into this list. Fourthly, the list is structured around the three sons of Noah. The first in verse 2, the sons of Japheth. The shortest list, the shortest list, because Japheth was the furthest out in relationship to Israel 
and was of the least concern. These were the people who spread to the north and to the west. You could think of them, if it's helpful, as those who went to Asia and to Europe. And we have a list here of the seven sons of Japheth, seven grandsons, 14 descendants from Japheth. Then in verse 6, we come to the sons of Ham. They settled in Egypt, Mesopotamia. I love saying that because I can say it. Um, parts of Arabia, North Africa. And these were Israel's near neighbours. And these were the people who caused them problems for centuries. In Ham, we have a list of these infamous people and places, the ones who will be conflict, in conflict with Israel for centuries. Egypt, Assyria, Babel, Nineveh, Sodom, Gomorrah, the Jebusites who had control of Jerusalem, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Philistines. Although it is possible that this is a different branch of the Philistines that we meet in First and Second Samuel. If you look at verse 14, just for a moment, in brackets, from whom the Philistines came. Most commentaries agree, and I agree with them. The Philistines here really does belong in brackets and is not one of the counting of the nations. But there's a remark inserted to explain where this important people later in Israel's history came from. And we see why later it is significant the Philistines are not probably counted in the number of nations here, but is given as an aside. So you have with Ham the four initial sons, Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan, from them seven sons and grandsons from Cush. Later on there are seven descendants from Egypt, and lest you think it's all sevens, just to be clear, it's not. There are 11 descendants of Canaan. If you add that up, that makes 29 descendants in the line of Ham, plus one individual who is singled out for mention, and if you add him, it makes an even 30 descendants from Ham. Well, who is the one man singled out? Cush fathered Nimrod. Did you see that in 8? Nimrod was the first on the earth to be called a mighty man. Some people say he might have been King Sargon of Akkad. Whoever he was, he was clearly an impressive man. We don't know if he was a good or a baddie. One possible translation for Nimrod is we shall rebel, which could make him a bad guy. And we see that from him come some of the most impressive cities and civilizations: Babel, Assyria, sorry, Assyria and Nineveh. He was mighty man. He said he was a mighty man, so much was a mighty hunter that it became a proverbial saying, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So to call someone Nimrod was to speak of their strength, their valour and their power. Uh, maybe it is because I've been around Americans a lot. Nimrod is not used as a, say, a mighty saying now. It's actually almost like a, an insult to call somebody a Nimrod. And I worked out that went back to Bugs Bunny, uh, to Looney Tunes, because Bugs Bunny would call Elmer Fudd a poor little Nimrod. And as far as I can see, that's why Nimrod is almost used as an insult. But it was originally meant to be mighty hunter on the earth. So you have Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And people of the Shemites spread out to northern Mesopotamia, Syria, parts of Arabia, and Moses saves the chosen line for last. We get Japheth, we get Ham, and now we have the Semites, the people from the line of Shem. Five sons 
Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lod and Aram. And then four mentioned through the line of Aram. Then two through the line of Arpachshad, Shelah and Eber. And Eber splits into two. Jokan and Pelag. Just as Nimrod was singled out, so Pelag is singled out in the line of Shem. Because in his days, the earth was divided. Some scholars say this was a literal, physical division. There may have been an earthquake in the days of Pelag. I think it's more likely what happened in the Tower of Babel, that it was in the days of Pelag the people were divided and dispersed on the earth. If you add all of these up, 14 for Japheth, 30 for Ham, 26 for Shem, which makes 70. And if you were to look at the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, Jesus and his apostles would have been familiar with the Septuagint. They had 72, and we'll see at the end why this might be significant. But we have a table of nations, 70 nations accounted for, and let me finish with three lessons for us. They're the four observations, three lessons. Number one, the peoples of the earth are diverse and they are dispersed. Be fruitful and multiply. God had blessed them, which is good. But it's also a sign of punishment. They are divided because of sin, as we'll see in chapter 11. Their dispersal and their diversity is a punishment and a restraint. We hear a lot of that word diversity. And diversity is never the end goal for its own sake and for itself in the Bible. Hell will be as diverse as heaven is. The point is, when there is a diversity moving forward in unity to some greater goal. And here we see that there is a good kind of multiplication that takes place. But on the other hand, its dispersal and its diversity is a punishment for sin. The history of the world, from the time after the flood to the present, is a history of conflict amongst people, tribes, clans and nations. You can't go to any time, any place, any people, any nation and say they are the people who are always at peace. I know we love to think that we are a peaceful nation, the Brits. But you can't go to any nation and say they're the people of peace. If you go anywhere, you can look at history of conflict and oppression and hurt and pain. Even between, if you, even in my own, and I love history, Japan, Korea and China. Or you can trace out the different movements of history. At one time the Moorish people, the Muslims, were in control of Spain. Later Spain was in control of the Netherlands. Later, the Netherlands had its independence and had its own empire, which was Indonesia, and they were ruling over the Muslims. So it works in all kinds of different directions in history. Oppression does not belong to one people or one part of the earth, but it is indicative of the sin of the human heart. We saw Cain and Abel. We saw wicked Lamech. We saw the marker of humanity before the flood. That all the thoughts and the intentions of their heart was only evil all the time. And after the floods wiped sin clean, you had the sin of Noah and his family. So there's always been this inherent conflict and division among the peoples of the earth. So when we find times of peace or prosperity, 
The question ought to be what unique factors led to that rather than what unique factors led to war and conflict. We know where war and conflict comes from. It comes from the human heart writ large in systems of nations in the world. And where we come to find grace with one another is God's common grace or his special grace blessings to us. So the peoples of the earth were diverse and dispersed. Secondly, the diverse and dispersed peoples of the earth are nevertheless united in a common ancestor. One way we might move towards some harmony in our day, some harmony in our day, one is to delete social media, no, it's, that's a half a joke, um, but the other is when there is so much division amongst people, so much conflict, so much conflict, you know, it, it, it even bubbled over the other night. I mean, I thought we were going to go to war with the EU at one point, no. For a few minutes the other night. There's so much conflict. And one way forward would be we should emphasise what we have in common rather than to make it the first step to break down people into smaller and smaller groups identified by greater and greater difference. After all, these people spread across the earth came from three brothers who came from one man. We have one ancestor. We have one ancestor. And at times an emphasis on race can make it sound as if we're almost different species of human beings. Or that fundamentally we're so different, so distinct, that we could possibly ever understand one another. And may it be possible that one small step towards healing divisions that exist is to emphasise that from the beginning we come from the same ancestor. We all share the image of God. We're all born into the world with the same sin nature. We all have the same spiritual need for Jesus. And if we belong to Jesus, we're going to live forever in the same place. Why would we spend our time on earth being quarrelsome and awkward to people that we're supposedly going to be in heaven together forever? Why do we spend our time quarrelling, picking fault, being critical. With that as our common heritage, Christ is our common destiny, then you can, that's the only way you can begin to think about what it means to love one another and what it means to learn from one another and what it means to forgive one another. I've seen more unforgiveness amongst professing Christians than I have amongst people who don't claim to be Christians. And that should be a shame to us. Because we have a common saviour, Jesus. We're going to spend eternity together. We're going to spend eternity together. The peoples of the earth are diverse and dispersed. They have a united in a common ancestor. Thirdly, the divided and dispersed peoples of the earth are all part of God's singular divine plan. And overarching this dispersion, these peoples that I couldn't say very well, this diversity is a single divine plan. And the plan is never to leave diversity in its place for its own sake, but that from diversity there would be a unity which leads to a great doxology praise to God.
Because what we see here, unlike any other document in the ancient world, is that God, Yahweh, is the Lord and God of all nations. Our God. It's likely that Paul had this text in mind when he said in Acts 17, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is God's doing and he is Lord over all. In 1 Kings 20, the Israelites were fighting the Arameans and the Arameans thought, we can defeat the Israelites because their God is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. 1 Kings 20 verse 28, And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills and he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is God over all. In Genesis 10, we see that the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is no local deity. He's not confined to one place or to one people or one land. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. How many sons of Israel were there that went into Egypt? Genesis 46, there were 70 sons of Jacob who went into Egypt. Deuteronomy says that there were 70 there were corresponding to the 70 nations of the earth. 70. Seven, biblical number of fullness, perfection, completion, and 10, another one of those numbers of completion, multiplied together, 70, to represent the totality or the completion or the fullness of a thing. I'm sure you're glad, I'm sure you're glad you came, Murray, for this. But 70 nations in Genesis 10. 70 nations representative of all peoples, the nations as they understood them. And Israel, 70 persons, went into Egypt. It's representative of a microcosm of the nations. 70 representing their fullness to correspond with the 70 and the fullness of the nations. Because one is going to have a mission to the other. It is really remarkable. Did you notice that the one nation... One people not mentioned among the 70. The one that you thought would be most central, there is nowhere a mention of Israel. Well, you say, well, Israel did not even exist yet. Jacob had not been born. Well, some of these people hadn't been born yet. So why is Israel not mentioned? Because chapter 10 is making way for chapter 11, which leads us into chapter 12. And the promise to Abraham is that he will be a father of many nations and that through Abraham's faith and through faith in the promised seed of Abraham the nations will be able to share the blessing of Abraham and as you would have first encountered this text you're meant to listen to this list of nations and I love to think of this when I was this week I thought of a Jewish schoolboy maybe because of homeschooling but I thought of a Jewish school schoolboy hearing this read or memorising it and saying, where is Israel? 
Where is Israel? And thinking out loud, what is God going to do with the nations of the earth? Well, he has a plan to bless the nations of the earth. How? Through you. Through me. Through us. Through our God and his promises to us. There was a world of people before Abraham. And it is through Abraham that God is going to save these peoples. So this is a great missionary text of the Bible. Genesis 10 equals great missionary text. 70 sons of Israel, 70 persons from the house of Jacob went into Egypt. How many elders went up the mountain and received the Holy Spirit's filling with Moses? 70 elders. How long was their captivity in Babylon? 70 years, representing the totality, the fullness of it. In Luke 10, how many disciples did Jesus send out? On the early mission trip to cast out demons, heal the sick, preach the gospel. It's a bit of a trick question because some manuscripts say 70, some say 72. In the Septuagint account, 72 nations. The ESV has 72. I think it might be 70. But there's a connection, to, there's, a, there's an intent to connect the sending out of the 70 with the 70 nations in Genesis 10. And that's why... Some would have 70, some would have 72, depending if you had your Hebrew or your Greek Old Testament. Hebrew 70, Greek 72. There was a connection to be made. The disciples are going out with the message of the gospel, are to preach not just to the lost tribes of Israel, but to reclaim and regather the 70 nations of the earth in Genesis 10. You see why I say it's a great missionary text? It's a great missionary text. And that's what I want to think about as we close. Because one of the things, and I, you know, I'm so glad we can come together. I am so glad we come together. But yeah, I miss. I miss fellowship. I miss singing. Absolutely. But one of the things that COVID, coronavirus can do to us, it makes our vision too small. It makes our focus too narrow. Who would have thought about limiting the, the numbers that people can come Tell people that if you want to come, you have to register. In some ways, it's contrary to who we are. We're not travelling. We're hardly leaving our homes. And our focus gets narrow. And if only I make it to the vaccine. I'll try not to be sick. Or I'm trying to make it through all the odious regulations with masks and everything. And our focus becomes narrow. But brothers and sisters, Lord willing, we'll be on the other side of this. And whenever that is, and even when we are not, God has given us a great vision. Do not let your dreams and your hopes be confined. Because the text shows us that God couldn't be bigger. He has a plan for the world that could not be bigger. How much of the world does God want to redeem? All of it. Genesis 10 the 70 nations of the earth. All of it. It doesn't mean that every person will be saved, but it does mean that from every tribe, language, tongue and nation, there will be some who are saved. Please don't let your vision be too small. Please don't let your vision be too small. Would you please pray that in your lifetime you would see the church flourish in the Muslim world? Because, can you imagine 60 years ago, there was almost 60 years ago, I'm not 60 yet, I won't tell you how old I am, but I'm not 60 yet. Can you imagine, there was hardly a church in China. 
How many Christians in China today? Over a hundred million. Would you pray for that in the Muslim world? Or in the 1040 window across Arabia and into India? And the people of Hinduism? Would you pray that there would be a breakthrough for the gospel? Or pray for Japan? That the Christian witness would be more than 1%. Or pray very close to home for the re Christianization of Great Britain. We'll give thanks to God for the Reformation that takes root in Latin America and what's taken place in the Sub Sahara in Africa or Brazil or Korea. You know that Brazil and Korea are the two, two, the two largest Presbyterian countries on the earth? Great mission sending ventures. Brothers and sisters, our vision must be bigger than COVID. Our vision must be bigger than this church, than this country, because the God who made all peoples and dispersed all peoples has always had a plan to redeem all peoples. We cannot have a bigger God with a bigger plan. So, here we are, Genesis 10. We're moving on to Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, and I can count as well, and we're going to see the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Israel. But remember that Israel's story was one part of God's bigger story for the world. And by grace, we have a part to play in that story. Isn't that thrilling? That we, by God's grace, have a part to play. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.